This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Can you dig it? Hello, I am here on a beautiful, beautiful, very hot, but beautiful Friday. I was, um, so interesting scenario. I'm, this is happening about, um, 11 or not 11, 10 55 in the morning on a Friday. And I should be at work right now, but I am not. And the reason why is because, so I, I was, my career was born in the work from home era. And so being born in the work from home era, I had to get everything shipped to me. I never had a desk. I never had a cubicle. I never had any fucking one of those typical things, you know, whatever. So I basically just got the basic pack of one sent to me and everything. So I got my computer sent to me, my monitor sent to me. Everything basically was there that was sent from the, basically the storage closet of my company where they held all their equipment. So my charger on Wednesday just decided to die on me. It just decided to just explode, not literally explode, but like just kind of like not work anymore. So my charger is not working anymore. I do all of my work off of my computer. I don't have any of my, I don't have my email on my phone. I don't have my Slack on my phone. I don't have any messaging services. I don't have my customers on my phone. So everything was basically centrally located in that computer. So basically I was... Like if if anything happened to that setup, like I would I would be fucked. It, like actually fucked in terms of how I would do my job. So I ran around a bunch of places yesterday. I went into my company's building, one of my company's buildings, for the first time that I've worked ever worked there. So that was kind of interesting. I went there for two minutes, and the the old uh, lady security guard basically said, "You need an appointment to come in here, even though my company's campus is really fucking spacious and huge, and I don't think I would give anybody COVID if I have if I have." Hurricane Delta variant or whatever, but any any case. So ran over there. They didn't have anything for me. I ran over to my manager's place twice, and he tried to give me his backup charger, but it didn't fit my computer. And so I had to order a cheap one online, which is coming today. But basically, I had to take yesterday. I mean, I tried to work as best I could, but I basically had to take yesterday off because I just I, I literally could not do anything. And um, so it was kind of nice. I mean, I, you know, went whatever and, you know, kind of just did something, some things to be productive. I've worked on this post that is going to be uh, this podcast and I kind of did all of those things where it needed to be, you know, in ingratiated into what I needed to do to finish up the week and kind of got started on everything. So what ended up turning out to be a post that I think started off pretty strong, I kind of was, you know, it was kind of a struggle to finish for some reason because I think it basically kind of it, – it, this happens a lot of times with you know a lot of my posts. I just kind of run out of fucking gas after a while. And um, 
you know, so it was just kind of one of those things where it was just like, okay, I'll just kind of do this and do this and, you know, whatever. And then when I ran out of steam, I just kind of wrapped it around. I tied it up real quick and made it concise. And that was kind of what turned out to be. But it was, um, this post was one I've been wanting to write for a couple weeks. I actually had this, this opening cause it was just so bizarre. Like my, I, I like my, I like writing the intros best out of anything else. I really don't, it's not that I don't care for the content. I shouldn't say that. I actually do care about the content because content is hopefully what you all here for, not my subpar humor or, you know, my personal life or any of that shit you guys probably don't care about, but you know, so, but I had this intro saved up for a while and I wanted to make sure that it went to the right place. And I think it did. And I think it helped really propel and carry the rest of the post. So here we go. Let's kind of just get into it. So two weeks ago, I did the unthinkable. Something that I considered so impossible that it was incomprehensible to me at the time. It was right between the level of me picking a, ba picking a ballet and coming out, out as a non-binary dolphin. But I did it, and I'm ready to reveal my sin. I bought a gallon of almond milk. Now, before all of you non-binary dolphin allies look for my address and or location in my car, let me elaborate. For all my life up until that point, I thought almond milk was for cucks. I hated the very premise of it. I viewed it as a snobby drink, one that elites bragged about on social media to prove their virtue to us lesser folks who couldn't afford it. Maybe it was because I'm from the Midwest and love our various dairy products. I don't know. Maybe it was simply a superiority complex thing. Again, I don't know. Whatever the case, I just didn't like it. Growing up in my house, we drank normal milk all the time. We would go through gallons of it every week. I loved it and still do love it, and so do my siblings. We were never a chocolate milk family because that was almost as big of a sin of not drinking it at all. I mixed it with my protein shanks and shakes and drank, drank glass on glass of it at dinner after sports practices. I was never, big, never a big cereal guy simply because I hated how sugared up and tainted the milk got when it was combined with it. It was an abomination, Sasha Baron Cohen voice. I was appalled when I saw that people were so casually substituting out my favorite 2% for this fraudulent milk that was derived from nuts. It was disgusting. And I made an informal vow to myself that I would never drink this putrid liquid. I would never invest in this horrific excuse for quote-unquote milk. I would never degrade myself in that fashion unless I make myself less of a man and more of a cuck. And I could never willingly make myself be a cuck. At least that's what I thought. When I moved to Austin, I began to reassess and look at my diet. My protein shake is perhaps the most important thing I ingest during the day. It provides immediate recovery to my muscles and helps refuel me for the rest, of my, the rest of my day and my work. But I began to realize that I felt clunky and stiff afterwards. So naturally, I began to look at the contents of my shake to see what was wrong. And it turns out that milk has a lot of calories and carbs in it. I began to realize that the cause of my clunkiness was probably the massive amount of those that I was ingesting after my workout, so I began to look at alternatives. Now, I may be a psychopath, but I'm not the kind of psychopath that combines protein with water. Those dudes are weird as fuck. That's one thing I'll never compromise on. I tried for a while to combine my protein with raw oats to make prot meals, my high school coach did, but then I realized it didn't solve the whole carb issue either. Realizing where this was headed, I looked up the aforementioned cuck sauce to see how it compared. And to my surprise, non-surprise, almond milk was much better in this department than normal milk. So I swallowed my pride and bought a gallon of it at Sam's Club. I nearly puked. The next morning after my workout, I whipped up my shake using my new ingredient and prepared myself to what was about to happen. And the results shocked me because I liked it. My shake went down easier than it had in years. I felt great afterwards. I couldn't believe that I didn't have the bloat to carry around anymore. I couldn't believe the turnaround. My body responded very well also, the output looking as good as the new input that I introduced it to. 
Now, I should stress that carbs are important, as is protein and as is calcium, but this is simply too good of an opportunity to pass up. If drinking almond milk makes you a cuck, then sign me up for whatever they're having, and not in the, the porn sense, but in the other sense. So, anyway. But it didn't stop there. If you ever walked into a GNC, you probably know that it's an absolutely fucking horrible experience. Their customer service sucks ass. I sympathize with salespeople, particularly because I am one, but there's something about someone pressuring you as soon as you walk in the door to buy pump fuel or whatever the fuck bullshit product the company is trying to push that the company makes, by the way, you should look at the label, that makes you uncomfortable. They're unrelenting. They don't stop until you either threaten to leave, I have, or buy their shit, I never have. However, after the almond milk incident, I began to think differently. I listened to the sales guy, who was much less of a cockhole than the others. He wasn't some 24-year-old bicep bench guy with a wannabe Jake Paul haircut and no leg muscle. No, this guy was overall very well built, had a family, and was trying to make a decent living. Well, I didn't buy pump fuel from him, and ne again, never will buy pump fuel from this putrid place ever. I did change out my protein and pre-workout for the first time in my entire life. In my after-workout analysis, I had noticed that what the GNC reps were saying to me all along was true. The protein I was using and had used ever since I started using protein at all was rel relatively full of shit compared to other alternatives. My pre-workout was the same way. It wasn't just the milk. It was the protein and all the other stuff that combined with it as well. So I swapped those out also and went full-on alchemy to make this ultimate workout mixture. And it was. The protein and pre-workout turned out to be much better also. I felt like a fucking juggernaut after ingesting my new combination. I couldn't believe I felt so good that quickly. I had shed my former lifting skin and become a whole new type of person, at least in the context of my workouts. I felt better, looked better, and performed better. I've gotten a lot stronger. As I tell people all the time, results of your physical health are at minimum 90% input and 10% output. If you don't put quality shit in your body, your body will not put quality shit out. You can exercise all the fuck you want, but if you don't put good stuff in your body, your body's not going to respond to it well. But I began to realize that it's not that simple. I've alluded to my change in my physical location a couple times in the past months, including just a couple minutes ago. And I feel like I should explain it more to make my last couple paragraphs of almond milk bullshittery make sense. I entered the workplace in June of 2020 working an entry-level sales job in Boston, Massachusetts. My company has very run very well in my estimation, and the path to upward mobility is both accessible and versatile. If you produce, promotions generally happen around a year into your tenure. And I, fortunately, was one of those people. However, Boston really didn't jive well with me. I didn't care for the atmosphere, the culture, and the general feel of the city, so I looked towards leaving. My company's headquarters is located in Austin, Texas, which is where I initially wanted to go out of college. And the only reason I didn't was that my recruiter had a quota to fill for the Boston office. So, after a fair bit of virtual networking, I landed myself a good promotion out in Austin, and I moved out as soon as I could at the end of this May. Austin is a lot cheaper than Boston. My dollar goes quite a ways farther out here than there. I also got a sizable pay increase in my promotion, which has allowed my financial fl flexibility to become even more stretched in a good way. I'm having a lot more fun. There's nice things to do. The government isn't threatening mass ma mask mandates or additional lockdowns, at least yet. It's awesome. My mood has also increased tremendously. I find them a lot happier here than I was in Boston. It really is a remarkable thing how big of a difference as simple, as, simple as a change in scenery can do for you. Throughout these last three months, I think I've honestly been in a state of disbelief. I have a stable job and a stable company. I'm earning a lot of money. If I play my cards right, I can earn a lot more money. If my running, money runs out, I have an emergency fund and a good-sized line of credit. My credit score is really good, hence the long line of credit. I'm paying down the minimal debt that I have and investing in saving money. I can go out for nice dinners. 
I live in a beautiful and safe apartment complex. I feel alive. My writing has gotten better. I'm doing a lot of exciting things with my business and content and my future stuff that I have planned. It seems that I haven't turned off every woman that I've met yet, although I'm sure that'll come with time. My life is good. But other people's lives aren't. And I'll give a personal example. My family, and I'm pointing more towards actually dominant side, towards my mom's side of the family, has been my fucking train wreck in the last three months. My mom's family has basically imploded with her, the only responsible one, mind you, left to pick up the pieces. She has selflessly done so to the best of her ability, even though she bears no responsibility at all for doing so what I, from what I can tell. She calls me a lot. I try not to talk because I know she only wants someone to listen to her because she can't go to a lot of people nowadays. And I feel a mixture of anger and sadness at this. Why does my mom have to get dragged down in the mire for other people's bullshit? Isn't fair. She's doing everything in her power to live a great life for herself. She has made some mistakes, sure, but certainly none that warrant the treatment that some people give her, particularly members of her own family. Whenever I talk to her, I always ask her if she needs me to come home and help. I'm only a flight away, I tell her. She always politely says no. I shouldn't ever take my life off track to help her and her family with hers and theirs, she says. My dad says the same thing. And I always respect her wishes, but sometimes I wish she doesn't. I just want to help. I just want her to get better. I'm currently training for the New York City Marathon in early November to raise money for Rally Cap Sports. I go on nine-mile runs every Wednesday and Saturday at 4 o'clock in the morning in order to get my miles in and beat the heat. It's hot in Texas, in case you weren't aware. The road I run on is one of the main roads that runs throughout Austin, stretching all the way from suburbia into the middle of downtown. It's hilly, constantly veering up and down. Hardly any of it is flat. Another thing you should know about Texas, and Austin in particular, is that a lot of homeless people live here. It's a major problem. Rogan grilled our mayor on his podcast and asked how he was going to fix the problem. He didn't really have a, well, he actually didn't have an answer at all when you look at it. How he would know the answer to that question is beyond my comprehension. Because how can anyone know? Homelessness is an incredibly complex problem to solve. It's not going to be fixed with a single bill. The residents have signed those. More housing. We've built those. And the enforced bans of camps. We've enforced those. Every Wednesday and Saturday morning on my runs, I see these people. They live in tarps on the sidewalk, on public benches, camping in large groups over an overpass 20 feet above I-35. If they roll over in their sleep, they'll shatter every bone in their body before being decimated by an oncoming semi-truck. They're a broken, sad group of humans. They don't have a lot of hope. Almost every one of them is strung out on some sort of substance. Alcohol, crack, heroin, meth, opiates, whatever. Some of them are so deranged they just scream and yell and talk to themselves in the street. They do this because no one wants to hear them. They've been forgotten, passed by. They're not likely to get better. I look around the world and see other horrible things. People getting genocided for their faith and nationality in places like Burma and China. The Taliban overtaking Afghanistan and imposing a reign of terror where they force people into slavery, burn them alive, and mutilate female genitalia. California is burning to the ground, leaving firefighters hopelessly disadvantaged. I see these things. We all see these things. And these things are not getting better, at least from what I can see. I see these things, and I ask myself a question. Who am I to get better? A lot of the aforementioned state of disbelief I've been feeling comes from a lot of questions like this to myself. I ask them often. It's like living in a constant, unrelenting state of imposter syndrome. What did I do? How am I in this place? Why are other people I know in this place in their lives, and others that I know are so far from it? 
I think this is an important topic, one that doesn't get enough coverage because I don't think a lot of people want to talk about it. It seems silly to do so. But these questions need to be asked. How should we feel about passing people by? About getting better? I've written about how everyone in my generation seems unhappy before. We think we should be happy, but we're not. We're constantly seeking, quote, better. But what is better? Is it worth it? Is it even okay to think about it? I've begun to have doubts myself if it's okay to entertain thoughts of improvement. It's shaken me to my core because it's a large part of what I think our world should entail. It's what I blog most about, I think. Therefore, I think it's important to tackle it and get these questions answered. In order to do so, we need to look at two things called improver's guilt and the improvement paradox, where they come from and why we feel it, and why it, indeed, is okay to get better and improve at the end of the day. But if you're an almond milk cock, you best stay away. Greg Barnes had a lot going for him. He was an incredible high school basketball player, averaging 26 points per game while being widely looked at as the best varsity player in his home state of Colorado. If any of you went through high school, praying that all of you did here, you know that all athletes, particularly ones of this caliber, are no, or, or that athletes, rather, particularly ones of this caliber, are no longer just athletes. They become celebrities. Barnes was liked by everybody. He was popular. He was getting recruited by tons of big-time schools, including all the Ivy League, Vanderbilt, Iowa, Notre Dame, and Utah. He had a golden ticket in almost every single way of life, from a social life to his college education to his basketball scholarship that inevitably waited him after he left his localized celebrity. All of which made his suicide so impossibly difficult to comprehend. In May of the year 2000, Barnes hung himself from an electrical cord in his garage. He would have graduated a little over a year later. He didn't leave a note, but there was a final message, a disturbing footprint that alluded into the reasoning why. When Barnes was found in his garage, he was also found with something else, a CD player, which played the song Adam's Song by alternative punk band Blink-182 on repeat. Like a typical song from the band, it was full of depressing lyrics of angst and sadness. Two of the most depressing ones were, quote, I never thought I'd die alone, and quote, I'm too depressed to go on, you'll be sorry when I'm gone, end quote. Like any suicide, particularly in the teenage category, this is an incredibly sad thing to hear. A friend who had talked to Barnes literally the night before said he was fine. They talked about, quote, normal stuff and girls. His basketball coach and his parents said something similar. An estimated 30% of the children of the local high school elected to stay home on the Friday of that week. He killed himself on a Tuesday. For the students that did attend, their tone was somber. They had been through a lot recently, particularly in the last year. The name of their high school was plastered all over the media. They just couldn't leave it alone. It was too shocking. A name that would live in infamy for the rest of time. Columbine. Thirteen months earlier, the satanic children Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold had rained hell upon the school in one of the most disturbing acts of domestic terrorism and violence our country has ever seen. Over a dozen students were killed, and a couple dozen more were left injured and all of them were left scarred. One of the victims of this tragedy was a student named Matt Kector. 16 years old at the time of his demise, he was found by Klebold hiding under the table in the school library, where the pair of murderers undertook most of their slaughter. Klebold found Kector under the table, dragged him out, and shot him. Matt Kector was a very close friend of Greg Barnes. Barnes also witnessed the shooting of heroic teacher Dave Sanders, who was one of the faculty that tried to evacuate students from the cafeteria when the shooting first started. 
When he attempted to flee with another student, he was shot twice in the back and neck by Eric Harris. He dragged himself into a nearby science classroom where an absolutely incredible student named Aaron Hansey, who was proficient in first aid, kept him alive for three hours before he eventually succumbed to death from blood loss. Greg Barnes suffered from what is known in psychology as survivor's guilt. First studied among Holocaust survivors, it was then formally introduced to the world by a man named Stephen Joseph, a psychology at the University of Warwick. Joseph had been studying the effects, of the, uh, the effects on passengers of the MS Herald of Free Enterprise, a ferry that had capsized moments after leaving a port in Belgium, killing 193 of the 459 passengers on board. In conducting a study of this event, Joseph's findings showed that 60% of the survivors suffered from survivor's guilt. In his own words, Joseph concluded, quote, There were three types. First, there was guilt about staying alive while others died. Second, there was guilt about the things that they failed to do. These people offered suffered post-traumatic, quote, intrusions as they relived the events again and again. And third, there were feelings of guilt about what they did do, such as scrambling over others to escape. These people usually wanted to avoid thinking about the catastrophe. They didn't want to be reminded of what really happened, end quote. Unfor this, unfortunately, is a very common phenomenon with us all. It is particularly prevalent in those who experience abuse, outsized trauma, or that grew up in a rough environment or neighborhood. It stays with them a long time, and most don't ever fully rid themselves of it. Post-traumatic stress disorder, particularly among people such as veterans, is a very common form. For those of us that have fortunately not, have ha not had to experience this, we still encounter micro-versions of it. Life is suffering. We all experience trauma and the negative things associated with it. Those things might not be Columbine, thank God for that, but they still matter. I'm not comparing Columbine to our daily lives, not at all, or anything for that matter. But I do think what happened to Greg Barnes can be applied to our lives in the context of improvement. As we, quote, get better and improve, one of the saddest things we realize is that a lot of people don't, quote, get better and improve. In fact, some of them end up getting worse. All of their dreams turn out to be just dreams. They never become that doctor, or that speech pathologist, or veterinarian that they wrote on their graduation cards in high school. They just casually slip away. In Mark Manson's second book, Everything is Fucked, a book about hope, he touches on the societal theme that overlays his entire thesis, the paradox of progress. It's something that I've alluded to in multiple times in my posts, but I believe it deserves a good reiteration. The paradox of progress is the realization that problems never go away. The world has gotten astronomically better in a lot of ways, but has gotten worse or stayed the same in others. And that eats at us. We want to think things are getting better, but we refuse to believe the hard truth of some things never doing so. As we get rid of problems, more inevitably manifest themselves. One of the hardest things to face is the one that I alluded to before, that some people are, to use Manson's terminology, fucked. We can't save everyone. We can't help everyone. Some people are naturally going to skew in a certain direction. Some will trend upward, some will trend downward, and some will trend laterally. A lot of us, especially young people, want to have an idealistic version of human society where everyone gets elevated, and we all ride a collective tide to whatever promised land we hope to one day reach. But this is idealism, and idealism hardly ends, ever ends up becoming reality. I like Brene Brown and her work a lot, but the universe is not abundant. Not everyone will accomplish their dreams. In fact, some of them will go in the complete opposite direction. Some will plummet into nothingness. The world will chew them up and shit them out without blinking an eye. They don't get better. They don't improve. 
And we don't like this fact. We would like to see everyone get better, even though that's impossible. There's only so much that exists in the world, and the best way to compare that is at the individual level. Group identity is a convenient solution, but not a proper one. Therefore, the paradox of progress in our scenario must be applied at the individual level as well. As we, quote, get better, we realize that our problems don't go away. They simply manifest themselves into other things. The, the people who don't, quote, get better have to deal with both sets of problems, the ones that existed before the attempt to improve and the ones that exist after. They have, to, they have it twice as hard as everyone else, which is particularly amplified if they don't pick their shit up and deal with their foundational problems first. And this is where Greg Barnes comes in. The Greg Barnes tragedy was, as we discussed, influenced by survivor's guilt. He deliberately took harm upon himself because he felt guilty that he was not harmed in the Columbine shooting while dozens of others, including a good friend and a notable teacher, were. Therefore, in order to equalize that balance in the universe, he emotionally overcompensated in the most tragic degree possible. I would argue that the same thing happens in this realm of improvement. Take my example in the first section, for instance. How wonderful a life it is to have the simple problem of deciding what kind of fucking milk gives me less bloat and carbohydrate intake. Some people can't afford milk at all. Hell, some don't even have access to clean drinking water. Animals are getting abused. Children are starving in Africa. Well, right, do you have to bother us with your milk problem, you privileged fuck? That feeling that came over me was very similar, although fortunately not as tragic, as the one that plagued Greg Barnes. That feeling was improver's guilt. Improver's guilt is simply when you feel guilty about getting better because others are not getting better. You look around at your life and are happy, but are instantly sad when you see tragedy unfolding for other people. This is a very normal thing. Humans are naturally very empathetic creatures, and we don't want to see people suffer in the most parts. Well, unless you're, again, unless you're some sort of sadist or something, and let's hope you're not that. Improver's guilt is a vicious thing because it corrodes our sense of what getting better really means. It immediately reinforces the idea inside of our heads that it's a bad thing to go beyond our current state to get to a future one that is potentially more desirable. Even if it could be actually better for us, we think it's not because not everyone else has it. And those, quote, everyone else's could be something very close to us. It could be a friend, a parent, a sibling. Because improver's guilt is far from a convenient thing. I think about this with my family quite often. What right do I have to be as fortunate as I am when my sister will never be able to live in a complete independent lifestyle and hold, a, hold down less than an hourly job, if that? Why should she not be able to hold a stable foundational relationship with a boyfriend or husband while I'm in perfect capacity and capability to do so for myself? Why should my brother have a toil away welding large pieces of metal, sweating his ass off, working his ass off, while I sit in an air-conditioned apartment selling a product that no one can see for ridiculous amounts of money? Why does my mom have to be burdened with her completely abnormal family while mine is relatively stable? Why does my dad have to worry about long-term care for my sister and financially backing my mom's family as well as his own, which eats at him day after day? I could go on and on, and it could get worse and worse. I'm very fortunate to have the problems that I have, and I bet you are a lot of two if you really look at a lot of you are too if you really look at them. One of the more overwhelming positives about going to a large university and living independently in three major cities over the past 18 months is that you get perspective. This is both a good thing and a bad thing. I've met people who have struck me in awe with how good they've had in, in their life, how much daddy makes it work, how, quote, perfect their families are, how naturally athletic or intelligent they are. And I've also met people who have struck me in horror with how shitty of a hand they've been dealt. 
parental sexual abuse, massive amount of death in the family, cancer, muscular dystrophy, cognitive and physical disabilities that blow my sister's disability out of the water. This trend leads us to another paradox, like the paradox of progress we discussed with Mark Manson. It is called, wait for it, the improvement paradox. In essence, the improvement paradox is this. We can improve, but only at the expense of seeing the cost of others who do not. We get better, but we see what happens to other people who don't. While we see self-control, stable relationships, and a good life for ourselves, we conversely see substance abuse, emotional toxicity, and a life that is just a threat away from falling apart for others. A worse scenario is one we also don't like to admit. Sometimes, we have to step on other people in order to improve. And take the personal example I opened this post with. I got a promotion. That was a good thing. The only problem was, the position that I got promoted into was also coveted by a lot of other people. And it's not like these people were schlubs either. Some of them were, but I work with a lot of competent and talented people. I was fortunate enough to win out in the end, but a lot of people suffered the reverse when they didn't. In addition, a company with my size and volume has to keep up the talent pool churning in order to maintain the trajectory we want to go on. We hire literally hundreds, and in some cases years over a thousand, of new people for the same position every single year. At the end of the day, you're really just a number until you prove yourself to be otherwise. I noted earlier that my company generally promotes after years of solid production, which is true in the majority of cases. But not all. The problem with those that don't produce and the ones that don't try to get the jump on everyone else is that they get, they get sandwiched in between those that improve now and those who have the potential to improve in the future. They become the red-headed stepchild of the organization. No one wants them. After a while, they might break out, but they also might not. And if they don't, they're more likely to lose hope. They leave the company, take a bullshit role they didn't, that they know they can't do, or they simply waste away, knowing that they missed their chance. These people should count themselves lucky that they're only a work in a work setting, where you can get by just fine in some cases with doing this. But what about when drugs are involved? Student debt. Other perilous endeavors that could severely harm your well-being or the well-being of others that depend on you. It's improved or be improved upon, as the old adage goes. But remember, to improve, we must endure improver's guilt in the improvement paradox. Improving is better than the alternative, so if we choose this path, we better know how to deal with both of them. And let's tackle both of those aspects next. Can you guys hear my uh, my dryer in the back now? I have my uh, my workout clothes in there, and I I, I sweat like a motherfucker, so I got to dry wash and dry these things out like crazy. So they're just banging around all over the place back there. So I don't know if you guys can hear that, but if you do, I I, I apologize. <laughs> a great example of improver's guilt in action comes from our friend J.D. Vance. Vance, if you don't know him from my media or elsewhere, is a venture capitalist, Senate candidate, and author of the best-selling memoir, Hillbilly Elegy. Vance hails from Southwest Ohio, an impoverished Rust Belt community called Middletown, where many more people wish to escape from than enter. I should know, I'm from a town somewhere similar. Not a lot of people improve there. Not a lot of people get better. Or I shouldn't say I'm from there, my family's from there, and I grew up in like two, two minutes from it, but anyways. Vance is one of the very few exceptions in our popular culture. After doing four years of military service with the Marines and graduating from The Ohio State University, Vance moved to New Haven, Connecticut to attend Yale Law School. 
Apparently, Yale Law School was the best law school in the nation, and Vance had no idea what to do with his life at that point, making him a prime contender for other miserly young people who think that going to law school will magically solve their problems, which it will not, and I should... It, it just won't do that. Just don't, just don't go. Vance actually ended up doing quite well. He survived the immense barracks of bureaucracy and snobbish Ivy League nonsense in order to make it the desirable end goal of every ambitious law student. Interview season for big law. Called the Fall Interview Program, or FIP, partners with some of the most notable law firms in the nation descended upon that ivory campus tower in order to pillage the halls for their next round of associates. Vance, like a lot of other people in his class who had survived up until that point, was well sought after. Early on in the process, he got invited to a fancy dinner at one of the swankiest restaurants in New Haven, where he was to quote-unquote interview with several of the big shots of this particular firm. Little did Vance know that this was not just an informal job interview. Rather, it was an indoctrination ceremony into the ways of America's elite and ruling class. Vance came from nothing. His mom was a mentally unstable heroin addict. His grandfather and grandmother, who raised him primarily, worked in a steel mill and as a homemaker. Their arrangement of marriage was volatile, to say the least. His grandmother set his grandfather on fire once, if that gives any indication. Vance's environment was a people who simultaneously wanted to get better, but never took on the personal responsibility necessary in order to create that desired new environment for themselves. He had never seen anything like this. And Vance was completely overwhelmed from the start. There's different types of white wine. How the fuck do you pronounce Sauvignon Blanc? Water can be carbonated. People bought suits at other places other than Joseph A. Bank. They can be made from silk. In fact, why is the tablecloth that I'm eating on made from nicer material, silk, than my own Joseph A. Bank suit? Why in the hell are there more than one fork and spoon? Why don't we don't reuse them here? The fat spoon is made for soup? I didn't order soup. Why the fuck is that man in a nicer suit than I handing me a cup of soup? As soon as he saw the, absurd, the obviously absurd nine utensils at his plate, Vance had to immediately bail to the bathroom and call his girlfriend, later wife, who came from a better background financially than he did, in order to help him. He made it through the dinner and landed a job offer at the firm along with all of his classmates at the table. The recruiters ended up being very nice people. But something troubled Vance about this. In his own words, quote, It was at this meal, on the first of five grueling days of interviews, that I began to understand that I was seeing the inner workings of a system hidden to most of my kind. Yale's career office had emphasized the importance of sounding natural and being someone the interviewers wouldn't mind sitting with on an airplane. It made perfect sense. After all, who wants to work for an unpleasant per- or with an unpleasant person? But it seemed an odd emphasis for what felt like the most important moment of a young career. Our interviewers weren't so much about grades or resumes, we were told. Thanks to our educational pedigree, one foot was already in the door. The interviews were about passing a social test, a test of belonging, of holding your own in a corporate boardroom of making connections with potential future clients, end quote. Vance's first fancy dinner tells us a lot about the workings of the American psyche and society. All of this seems so excessive, so unnecessary. But the crazy thing is that it actually is. There's a certain disdain and classism that can result from people who are in the elite class of folks towards people that are not. Most people don't get to experience it unless they improve to a point of seeing it firsthand, like Vance did. Not many people from Middletown, Ohio, get to attend Yale Law School. Most of them probably don't even know where Yale is. I didn't until I read the book. And why should they and would they? It's so far away. It's foreign to them. That world doesn't make sense to them because it doesn't give a single fuck about the world that they currently inhabit. This scenario is an immediate cause of improver's guilt and hits right in the genesis of where it comes from. 
That feeling in Genesis is this, one of alienation. We are tribal creatures. We're much less evolved than we would like to believe that we are. A big reason for our overall progression as a species is a direct correlation and result of us banding together in ever-expanding tribes and coordinate, cooperating together in order to push forward. It's embedded into our cultural DNA. That's the reason why we have borders and countries and different cultures in other places within the world. So, naturally, whenever we distance ourselves from other people, we feel bizarre. We need to stay in that type of environment in order to feel that comfort. When we don't feel like we're a part of the greater collective interest of something, we feel ostracized and even hated by the people that we want to be a part of. This is not saying that we should sacrifice our individual identity for a collective identity, not at all. But two things can be true at the same time. We need a greater group of people in order to find solace within. If we don't, we succumb to our own individual vices, which, as we all know, can be less than positive a lot of the time. When we improve, we immediately create that separation from people that don't. We feel weird, like we don't have much co in common with that group anymore. You might have some things, but you certainly don't have as much as you once did. And odds are, they'll notice before you. They'll start call to call you names. Fake, sellout, etc. As soon as the mob begins their turn on you, there's little resistance to their vitriol that, you can begin, that they can begin to spew. This makes us innately feel like we're doing something wrong. We don't want to feel like we're actively harming a group of people, particularly those that used to share our identity and place in life. We can't help but feel that somehow we are responsible for their current state of being in dissatisfaction with our new role model of behavior. But the thing that we must remember is that responsibility cannot be enforced in a large group of people. No. It must be taken on within an individual and then adopted by other individual people. People can see people take responsibility all they want, but until they get some for themselves, they cannot see the same progression. But at our core, we still feel bad. We want to emphasize with empathize with people. We want to make them feel like they're valued and that what they're doing is going to matter. However, sadly enough, we slowly lose that ability as good things keep happening to us and bad things keep happening to others. There's a law that is a generally accepted universal principle called the Matthew concept, which is derived from a verse in the Bible. It's used in popular culture to explain widening gaps between equality of things like income and success, among others. The phrase states, in essence, quote, To those who have everything, more will be given. To those who have nothing, more will be taken. This is a very harsh reality of the way of the world, but it's the way that the world works. It's simply compounded interest in relation to our decision-making, responsibility, and values. The people who embody good decision-making, responsible behavior, and values and apply those with great consistency will more than likely end up living a much better life than a person who makes shitty choices in these type of categories. The great thing about individual consciousness and sovereignty is that, at the end of the day, we get to decide what we do, what responsibilities we take on, and which values to embody. We can be influenced and swayed, of course, but it's no, by no means the end-all be-all. We slowly lose that ability to empathize with people simply because we are too removed from the situation in order to do so. Remember our conversation on awareness a few months back? On how you're only really, quote, aware of something because of your proximity to that something? This is what I'm talking about. When you become removed from a situation, you lose sight of the reality of that situation. When people move out of the projects and into the hills, they forget what it's like to starve. When people are spoiled as children and can't make it as adults, they grow to hate the very place that they come from. When you go from the farm to the city, you gradually forget all you had to do to survive that very existence.
eventually, we end up at a place where we no longer have simple improvers guilt. The only thing that we possess is nostalgia for what we left. You only have the memory, if your memory is accurate at all in the first place. Whenever you attempt to go back and revisit your old, old lifestyle and all it comprised, you find it remarkably hard, if not impossible, to do so. When you get better and move on with your life, you have to associate your sense of self with that new arena in order to survive. But in order to survive the new one, you must sacrifice the old one. As the saying goes, you cannot be in two places at once. That saying is true both in the physical and metaphysical world. You cannot occupy one headspace while simultaneously attempting to occupy another. You have to draw a line in the sand and choose where you want to be. This is the truism as individual responsibility is reflected in the quality of one's life. You either choose to get better or you choose to not get better. Get busy living or get busy dying. Get busy improving or get busy not doing so, to quote Andy Dufresne. There's a bar and restaurant in my hometown called Two Bucks. It's a small chain that's local in Ohio. At least I think it's local in Ohio. I don't know if it's spread further out by now. I would assume not. But anyways, they do quite well, I would say. They at least survive the pandemic. My town is relatively quiet in terms of young people. There's no university located anywhere that's near it that's of prominence. So the young people that live in the suburb or whose family live in that suburb have to deal with what they have and use what they got. In terms of drinking and reminiscing, two bucks is just about their only option. Every Thanksgiving Eve, which is apparently the biggest drinking day of the year, I had no idea that this was the case, two bucks floods the alumni from my old high school. They chum it up and remember the past, tell familiar and old and boring stories, and update everyone on their lives. It's basically a high school reunion without the force shit that comes with the formal event of that nature. But I fucking hate it all the same. I was having a conversation about a month ago with one of my old high school buddies who lives in Detroit working for a major car manufacturer. We mentioned this trend, and he mentioned the elephant in the room. He can't relate to anyone anymore. The uncomfortable and unfortunate truth of the matter is that this is the final destination for those people who choose to do the best thing for themselves instead of fraternizing with a large group of people that don't. You end up on an island, isolated with nowhere to turn and no one to talk to. Whether you like to admit it or not, you've changed. Humans are incredibly resistant to change if you haven't caught on to that fact. We don't like it in aggregate. It makes us uncomfortable. It's something that we all fear for the most part. But the question we need to ask is, is it worth it? We've received some conflicting evidence to both sides so far, and you might be conflicted yourself. But there is an answer, a definitive answer. It is okay to get better. It is okay to improve your life. And it is worth the price of admission. And here's why. We've talked on both sides of the improvement coin about improver's guilt and the improvement paradox and also the side of improvement that nat we naturally feel is good. But the essential question still remains. Is it worth it? Is it really worth all the hurt we have to take along the way in order to become better as people? Is it really worth it to try to convince ourselves both indirectly and directly stepping on other people in order to get more of a better piece of the world is a good thing? I believe the answer to be yes, and here's why. When you look at the grand scheme of human history, we've all been on a remarkable bend towards improvement, which has therefore improved nearly everything else around us in the world in which we live. Are we perfect? Certainly not. 
but to each one, teach one. To each one, improve one. All it takes is a single spark to light a flame, and who knows that how bright and strong that fire will burn. In trying to improve, human beings will fuck up a lot. You will fuck up a lot. I've fucked up a lot. But in doing so, I see three primary benefits. The first is that it comes naturally to humankind. As I stated earlier, it is natural to want a better life. It is not selfish of you. Even if the universe isn't abundant, not everyone can have, quote, it all. In my post about privilege, I lambasted the fact that it could be attributed to a trivial category such as religion or skin color, simply because everyone wants what privilege gets you if they're willing to nut up and admit it. Who wouldn't want to be considered a person of higher status, someone that people look up to and can get things for themselves? It's the abuse of privilege that's the problem, in the words of Kendrick Lamar, not the pursuit of it. The pursuit of privilege in any venture of our lives is simply an extrapolated version of the pursuit of improvement. The long curve of, human history, humans, of the history of human society bends towards both fast and gradual improvement. The proof is in the pudding, or history. We, we don't have to make fire with sticks and stones anymore or kill each other in warring tribes. We mostly get along just fine and make do with what we don't get along with in mostly okay fashion. In the book of Genesis, God tells Adam and Eve to, quote, be fruitful and multiply. While a lot of people typically associate this with fucking and making kids, I've seen a lot of people take this phrase in a lot of different ways. A way I can see this playing out is with their own consciousness as humans. Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve gain consciousness after eating the fruit on the tree of good and evil. They see each other naked and are banished from paradise. They literally invent sin and all that it, it sin entails. From this point in the biblical timeline, there's only anywhere to go from up. Hell, even one of their kids murders the other in cold blood out of pure and unbridled hatred. After falling so far to gain so little, God predicted that humanity would have a slow rise back to the top of the hierarchy. There would be a lot of disappointment and failure and misery, but we would eventually get better. If nothing else, that story in particular shows the powerful influence that the ability and sometimes necessity to strive can have on a person. You don't want to be where you are, so you go to where you've never been. You create a new life for yourself because you're sick and fed up of what you don't have. You should not totally spurn gratitude, but you can't mindlessly walk through it either. Furthering on this, it's a net positive to the world when individual improvement is shown. Like a lot of other human emotions, there is a lot of inertia behind someone getting better. Think about it. How many times have we been inspired by a child beating cancer? By a victim of domestic abuse finding a loving relationship? From an animal to shelter finding a loving home? Probably a lot. I then pose this challenge. Who is to say that we can't do that for ourselves, with ourselves, and with other people? I believe that improvement is a net positive on society simply for the fact that it can inspire others to do the same. People benefit from the good things that other people create. Conversely, people benefit from destroying the bad ideas that people do not want. These are two different methods of improvement that are beneficial for society in tremendous ways. So why not push both of them? And this points to a larger argument, one that sickens me perhaps more than any other in our current culture. A lot of narratives go around in our culture about how people are, quote, stuck. How about, they're, how about they're constantly, quote, oppressed with no hope of escaping their slavery within whatever sphere of oppression they're apparently confined into. People in higher places push this nonsense on people in lower places in order to gain prestige and power. But that argument isn't just bullshit. It's heinous. Because how dare you tell someone that they can't get better because of something out of their control? 
who in their right mind would stand by and allow themselves to get mentally imprisoned by someone who wants to shit all over your human potential, one that they themselves do not know and fold a boot. But the great thing about improvement, the one thing that not many people talk about, is that it can allow you to show others that you can do it. You can show them that it doesn't have to be that way. This is not succumbing to diminishing returns of value, but rather looking upwards towards something better. And I think that's something we can all be happy to participate in. Improvement can feel us leaving conflict. Leave. Oh my God! Wow, I fucked that up really bad. Improvement can leave us feeling conflicted. It is an over, overall net positive, but the process of getting better can leave us with mixed emotions about going from where we were to where we are. But when doubt creeps in, remember that you getting better is you doing your individual part to help society get better. It is not a matter of privilege or right, but a matter of duty to yourself to make your life as best tailored to you as possible. That way. Your values can shine through, leaving everyone else to hopefully follow you in pursuit of their own individual journey. From your choice of beverage to your desired trajectory of your life, remember that it is all up to you. Your choice. But on a hot day, milk is only one thing. A bad choice. See an anchorman, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, everyone, that's my post for the day, or the week, I should say. Um... I thought it was an interesting topic. I still think it's an interesting topic. I'm going to marinate about it some more. So hopefully you guys found it the same. So open your mind, own the day. Thanks for listening, everyone. Appreciate it. Have a good one. We'll see you next week. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nino Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight? <laughs>